Before we get into today's chat, we'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we record this podcast today, the peoples of the Kulin Nation. As always, we pay our respects to their elders past and present. So if I'm in labour and that's what's happening, I have a bit of a request. It might seem crazy, but can we clean the house and can you please scrub the stove? <laughs> I love it. Oh, and like that does not seem crazy to me at all. Every mother that I have said this to you, their response has been, that's not crazy. That's no. not crazy at all. Oh, we that, totally get just it. clean the stove, please. Welcome to Talking in Common, a podcast of all things lifestyle, family, relationships, well-being, kids and culture. This is not a how-to, but an insight into the lives of ourselves and others and how we all manage to get by. Hosted by myself, Kate Gadinsky, and my co-host, Sophie Panton. Take a listen and let's find out what we all have in common. Thank you to today's episode sponsor, Activated Nutrients, the creators of certified organic daily multivitamin powders that are scientifically formulated to meet the nutritional and energy needs of you and your family derived from nature, backed by science. We have a very special guest joining us today, Soph. (gasps) Special, precious, tiniest guest we've ever had. Well, I'm so stoked we are finally doing this episode. Do I ever say say that word? Um, We're really doing a juggle here today. I am sitting. Child attached to my boob. I'm on Soph's lounge room floor. I have come over to dig deep and get all of her little wise words of wisdom from her birth story. I hope you've got some wise words of wise words of wisdom for me, my love. I'll do my best. You're gonna hear lots of little baby sounds in this episode, guys. Here he is, my sweet little man. At only four weeks old, I've got her back recording the potty. He's five weeks now. Five weeks. close to six, actually. So, yeah, bear with us. Let's talk about what we've got in common today then. Oh, what do we? Got a newborn baby anywhere? (laughs) No, no newborn babies here. Look, I think we said last episode we're now mums of two, so. Sometimes that we don't always have in common, but we probably do at the moment is I've definitely been having a nightly drink every night now. Are you on the... All the time. Yeah, I thought so. You so look forward to that little tipple at the end of the day. Oh, look, let's face it, if we get to the afternoon, we're doing a pretty good job. Yeah, 3 p.m. in your house. I've been at your house at 3 p.m. <laughs> uh, listen, I've been at your house at 2.45, I reckon. <laughs> I reckon it's about time for a drink now. Good point, actually. Look, it's past lunchtime. As soon as we wrap this up. Do you know what I've been drinking, though? We might not have this in common, and we definitely won't have this in common, but my nightly drink at the moment is a brandy. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say, like, kombucha with, like, organic vodka or something. I'm not pregnant anymore. There is <laughs> no, no with organic vodka, I see. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh, brandy. Okay. I wouldn't have pictured you to say that, but I reckon I would get on board with having a brandy with you. Next time we have a drink, I will make you one to try. I actually think you'll like it. It sounds no with dry, yeah, brandy and dry. And it's a drink that my mum used to drink when we were all kids. Yeah, and I was at her house recently, and I haven't really been feeling like wine. Like straight after birth, I was very much the same with honey. I didn't feel like drinking for quite a few weeks. Mm. You know, you're so tired, you just feel 
people a bit sort of scattered and everything's crazy mm. for a few weeks. But she did offer me a brandy and dry and I so enjoyed it. So sophisticated. It sounds so sophisticated. Or is it like an old lady drink? I'm not sure. <laughs> but either way, it's bloody good. And you know what Aiden's like? If you give him something new, you give him an inch and he runs a mile. He's been researching. Oh, He's got don't. all these good brandies. He's got all <laughs> the best dry gingers to try. We're doing oh, tastings every night. Yeah, it's great. All right, well, I think you should quickly text Aiden if he might be home by the time we finish this and yeah. come home with a bottle of brandy and um, happy days. Yeah, we've got about three to try. Don't worry. <laughs> so as mentioned before, we are going to talk about your birth today. Now, I was okay. only kidding. You're trying to make me nervous. I'm only kidding. I feel kidding. like you're interviewing me. I am. <laughs> It'll be so chill. Don't worry. No, and I, I was only kidding. You don't have to share us with wise words of wisdom. It's just a very much a open chat between the two of us mm. well everyone loves a birth story right yeah especially anyone that's been stories. through it as soon as I had experienced birth the first time I loved hearing people's birth stories so here to share anything you want to know but bear with me forgive me because like my brain is a bit scattered when you arrived before I was just telling Kate I'm just having one of those days where I just feel exhausted you know a few nights or you know in my case a few weeks of not getting a proper night's sleep, but just some days I feel fine and then some days it kind of catches up on you. So I'm having a bit of a brain fog day today. So bear with me, but I'll try to remember all the details. <laughs> well, look, I know you always say you can't do two things at once, but one thing I have noticed about you since Ren has been born is all of a sudden you can multitask. And I'm not just saying this because, again, we did speak about this in a recent episode, how there was a study that showed the more children you have, the more productive you become. But that's right. the other day, you were writing an email with one hand, you were having a conversation with me, and you were breastfeeding. I'm like, <laughs> who are you? And like, you, we were having a proper conversation. So something's happened to you since you've given birth. I've become that statistic, you know. The more kids you have, the more productive, the more multitasking you can do. But you just also have no choice. No, you've got no choice. Like we'll get into the postpartum a little bit later in the episode, but Ren's a hungry little boy and he feeds almost every two hours. So that's basically my whole day taken up with him attached to me or like I am right now, if you happen to be watching this episode, like I'm just nursing him after having a feed there's very little time between feeds so if you can't multitask you ain't getting shit done no, nothing's happening nothing's <laughs> happening and we've got a podcast to record yeah we've so let's, let's get into it because he's going to want to be fed again in a minute yeah okay so leading into the birth then mm -hmm. you're going into labor mm -hmm. where were you i know though but where were you <laughs> what happened how'd it go down how many weeks along were you? Let's talk about all of it. So I was 40 plus two, so 40 weeks and two days. And I was very determined this time to hopefully go into spontaneous natural labor. Last time with Honey, I was induced and I did have a positive experience with her birth and I don't regret any of it, but I was really hoping to just trust my body this time and trust the pregnancy and trust the baby that everything could happen naturally and that's what I hoped for and that's what I really desired for this birth and it's really interesting because once you get to the gestation 
period in Australia, which they say is 40 weeks is when you're full term, is it? Or, you know, once you go over 40 weeks, it's sort of labelled as overdue yep. here in Australia. I think 38 weeks is, is... Is it 38 to 40? Yeah, full yeah. term, I think. Yeah. So it's kind of like part of our culture and education to think that once you get over 40 weeks, you're overdue and that's when you should start to look at intervention. Yeah. And fairly so because, you know, things can start to go wrong if you leave it too long. You know, all of these sorts of considerations are important. But I just really wanted to trust in the natural process and wanted to avoid being induced if I could. And I really had to stick to my guns because once it got to the point where I was overdue, people start suggesting different forms of intervention, start, you know, sort of making you think like if you go on too long, these are your options or this is what you should start to think about. And it can be quite overwhelming. I found it quite hard to navigate and trust myself because I just felt the weight of this sole responsibility of the child because it's in my body and I don't want to be naive and make the wrong decision, but I just really wanted to trust in the natural process. So I think at my last appointment with my midwife she was suggesting things like doing a stretch and sweep and that's like let's call it like the lesser of evils of early intervention I just really didn't want to do any of it I just really wanted to keep going for a few days and just wanted to sort of take it day by day and she actually said to me afterwards you know you should be really proud of yourself for trusting your gut going with what you really hoped for because it worked. I did go into spontaneous labour. You <laughs> manifested did. what you wanted. I actually did, you know, yeah. like I met this really beautiful doula a few weeks beforehand and she said to me, like, start to picture what time of day you want to give birth. Was like, that the time you wanted to give birth? <laughs> in the middle of the night? No. <laughs> you didn't but give I did birth. oh hang on. <laughs> well I did picture it to be during the day. Yeah. Whereas Honey was born in the middle of the night and I did picture it to be during the day and he was born at lunchtime. Yeah. Actually. So I hadn't thought about it like that, but yeah, funnily it was. But yeah, she started to say things like that, visualise the type of birth that you want to have, you know, and, and think about all of that sort of stuff. But, you know, all of these little things that I started to implement before giving birth really did set me up in the right sort of mind frame and right headspace to have the birth that I want. You did the work. You put it in there. Yeah, and you do. You have to do the work. Like you have to do the research. You have to know what your options are. It's like if you go to the doctor about a sickness or an illness and completely trust what they say without doing your own research or something. Like they could make a mistake. They could be wrong. Of course. Like you should never trust someone else completely with your health or your desires or your choices so and you know when I was pregnant with Hadi I had done a lot of research I did feel like I was empowered and that sort of came with me through this pregnancy and this birth as well and yeah it did give me the birth that I wanted in the end but where was I and so, what happened okay I'm gonna take <laughs> sorry you, took I'm me gonna, on a bit I'm of a tangent you on track for a sec so can you please share with everybody where you were <laughs> when you started having contractions, when you knew, all right, this is it, the labour's happening. Give everyone mm. a bit of the backstory because it's quite funny. It's quite funny. <laughs> and then what, not only after going into labour, then how the rest of the night planned out. So it was about 10 or 11 p.m. at night. Aiden had just gone to bed. My partner had just gone to bed and I was about to go to bed and follow him. But the baby was super wriggly inside my belly 
moving so much to the point that it was almost hurting and uncomfortable and very unusual and it would not stop. So I sort of put down my block of chocolate for a minute, (laughs) sat up straight on the couch, tried to figure out like what was going on, tried to move to make myself more comfortable and it just did not stop moving. It was going crazy. Like I was physically looking down at my belly and there was arms and legs going everywhere. So this is strange. So I went and woke up Aiden and said, I just need you to feel this and have a look at this because it's making me feel really uncomfortable and I don't know what's going on. And he was like, oh, okay, yeah, wow, that's really unusual. So anyway, we got up and like had a <laughs> cup of tea together and that's when it sort of dawned on me that something was happening and that I was going into labour because, you know, by that stage it was obvious. And let me just add that this was off the back of having the most horrendous day with honey vomiting all day with gastro. And she was still vomiting, right? She was still, she was still sick, the poor thing. Yeah. I remember was... speaking to you that day and you were like, honey's really sick and I think I came to drop some stuff off to you or something and um, you said to me on the phone, oh, God, I just hope today's not the day I go into labour, like just Don't. because like honey's really unwell and there's like towels everywhere and she's throwing up every time, you know, she eats or drinks anything, you know, hopefully it's not today. And I'm thinking, you, know, <laughs> you are 40, 40 weeks pregnant. <laughs> and then, ta-da, when it rains, it pours, right? Yeah, it's just what the universe had in store for me. But, yeah, so poor little honey was vomiting every half an hour all day that day. Aiden was at work that day, so it was just me and her. I honestly was like, it can't be today. Like, <laughs> it's just, would just be cruel if it was today. So, anyway, it was that night that I got these unusual feelings. So, yeah, Aiden and I got up and had a cup of tea. By this stage, it was maybe almost midnight. I had a bit of a little mini meltdown because, for exactly that reason, that I just was not in the m- mental space to be going into labor after having a day with honey so sick and I just started freaking out I was like I'm not ready for this I'm not ready I didn't think it was going to be today it doesn't feel like the right time had a little freak out had a cry and calmed me down and then once I sort of calmed (laughs) down I said to him um okay so if I'm in labor and that's what's happening I have a bit of a request it might seem crazy but can we clean the house and can you please scrub the stove? (laughs) I love it. And like that does not seem crazy to me at all because we're both a little OCD and Mike thinks very clean. And you didn't want to come home to a mess. Who would? Every woman, particularly every mother that I have said this to you, their response has been, that's not crazy. That's not crazy at all. We totally get it. Clean the stove, please. Clean the fucking stove. I cannot bring my fresh little baby and my birthing body vulnerable home. self home yeah my vulnerable shit. self exactly home to this mess so we literally cleaned the house top to bottom like Aiden had the vacuum out <laughs> scrubbing the stove I was folding all the washing making the bed changing the sheets like making the house like spick and span spotless and I think I had like said to you a few weeks leading up to this like the thing that I'm really fixated on is just coming home to a clean house it is just that nesting instinct I think you just can't help it it's just part of the process So we cleaned the house, you know, top to tail for about two hours or something. And then by this stage, I was having really mild contractions, not too painful and very manageable, but I definitely knew that that's what was happening by this stage. And then just as we had decided that the house was clean enough and that my contractions were mild enough, I said to Aiden, I think I should go to bed because I need to get some sleep. Just as we hopped into bed to relax and go to sleep, we hear Honey yelling out to us, 
Mummy, Daddy, I've been sick. She was talking to herself in the cot. Oh, honey, hun buns, why are you being sick? Why are you so sick? And we were like, oh, no. The poor thing, she was sort of crying and we went in there and there was vomit all over the cot, all over her face, all over the sheets, all over her teddy bears. So then we were up for like another hour. That's full on even just on a normal day or a normal night. Not in labour. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty full on. So then, yeah, that was that. Then we finally got into bed at about 3 a.m., fell asleep, and then I woke up at, according to my little notes that I wrote down here, 4.27 a.m. I woke up with quite a tight, strong contraction. And so then I felt like I was really in it. The contractions were every sort of eight to ten minutes from there for about two hours. And the morning, like this was a really beautiful time. Like by this stage, Aiden and I were very calm about it like he was very supportive and calm we just lit some candles in the house put on some lamps put on some really nice calming meditation music diffused some oils just like made it a really nice relaxed space in our home and we just talked and cuddled and rode through the contractions until they got a little bit more intense. Then we called my mum. She came over to be here in case we needed to go to the hospital so she could be here with Honey. And that was actually also really beautiful. She was with me for the birth of Honey and I sort of hoped that she could be here for the birth of this baby as well. But because Honey was so sick, I just felt like it was the best option to have her at home with Honey so I could feel confident and happy with the fact that Honey was totally taken care of. So once mum came over, it was really, really nice to have her be a part of it and have her feminine energy um, with me for a couple of hours as well. And I was saying afterwards, like, it would have been so funny to have, like, a time-lapse camera in our living room because I had, like, cushions on the floor. I was bent (laughs) over doing one contraction. Then I was up leaning against the window. So positions, what did you kind of find helped you along, like, during the process of, of, I mean, those earlier contractions... I suppose you can move, still move around a little bit more. but Yeah, when they're mild and yeah. like quite manageable, it's okay. But when they start to get really intense, there's really nothing that makes you feel comfortable. But I think in one of the last episodes, I was talking about having this really nice induction massage. Mm. And the lady that I had the massage with gave me some really good labour techniques. Mm. and Pressure points or...? Yeah, pressure points. We didn't end up using them. But this ancient tech I think she said it's an ancient Mexican technique with the big scarf, like this really big, thick scarf, and you can go in different positions where you wrap it around your belly and your support person, in my case it was Aiden or my mum at this stage as well, could hold it up and sort of make your belly quite weightless and do things like shake it gently and just sort of take the weight out so we tried a few of those moves where I was like down on all all fours and this was supporting my belly and it felt so good it was amazing because your body just feels so heavy and uncomfortable I was just saying to you before we were recording this like the feeling of once the baby had dropped down into my pelvis sort of ready into its birthing position it was so heavy and uncomfortable was that before you went to the hospital I think that's what that uncomfortable movement was the night before. Yeah, right. Okay. Because it actually sort of happened then and I was like, my stomach feels weird but I'm just going to pretend <laughs> that it doesn't because I'm not ready for this. Yeah. Yeah, so. Okay, so your mum's here. It's early morning. I'm assuming the sun's coming up. Sun's come up. 
at what point did you go, right, I need to go to the hospital? Because I know you you wanted to be at home for as long as possible. Mm. Basically, when I got to sort of like the shivering, jaw-shattering pain <laughs> stage. You're like, I'm literally going to pop this baby out on the floor in like a matter of minutes. Yeah. No, I didn't feel any of that bearing down feeling yet. The contractions were just getting closer in time and much more intense. And I suppose, yeah, it was a beautiful morning where the sun was rising. It was kind of interesting. Like every time I had a contraction, I'd close my eyes and then I'd open my eyes and it was lighter than it was before. So it was was really beautiful part of the labouring experience and, and I did want to be at home as much as I could and I, and I was but I suppose the point that I chose to go to hospital was when I wasn't appreciating the beauty and the, anymore I was just in a lot of pain and it sort of takes any practical thoughts away yeah. from you and you're just sort of in a bit of a zone where you can't really communicate that much and that was the point where I was like I think I need to go into the hospital now because I don't think I'll be able to communicate much more how comfortable I am or what's going on and yeah I mean everything just felt so right the timing felt really good like Aiden sort of went and put the heater on in the car and put a cushion in the car for me and it was a really beautiful clear sunny morning and being so early in the morning on and it was on a Sunday as well there was no traffic on the roads so the drive to the hospital was really smooth Aiden just sort of kept trying to help keep me in my zone. He put the same music on in the car. We just sort of held hands. I think I cried a lot of the time. I spoke to your mum on the phone. She rang me. Oh, just yeah, when you at left that from time? the hospital. And she, oh. I was saying, How is she? I said, How is she going? And she was saying that you were good, but yeah, you'd had a lot of teary moments and that yeah. it was time to go to the hospital. And then as you were walking out the door, you were still like, oh, maybe I don't need to go yet. No, oh, oh God, and like, oh, pretty much. That's yeah. what I got from it. Yeah, um, see, there you go. I can't even really remember that. So, okay, so you're on your way to hospital, you get to the hospital, what happens? So this time around I was at a public hospital. So this part of it was a bit of a different experience as well because I just had a midwife and – a few people have said as well, like, that would be another great podcast episode as well because the first time I had a obstetrician and went through the private system and, like, again, had a great experience but just felt different about it this time around and felt like I didn't need a private obstetrician, so I went through the public system. I got into the program at the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne where you have a one-on-one midwife. Yeah. She was super supportive, got along with her really well. And, yeah, again, like, everything just aligned like she was on duty that day so Aiden was on the phone to her a few times throughout the contractions and throughout the early labor updating her and she was just saying to Aiden just tell Sophie that I'll be there there's nothing to worry about everything sounds like it's progressing really well just reassure her and that gave me a lot of reassurance and confidence about going into the hospital too because I was nervous about getting out of that really comfortable, safe zone that I was in at home into the very sterile hospital environment. And also you hadn't had a lot of opportunities. Obviously you'd gone there for appointments and stuff, but you couldn't really do like a proper tour as such of the Mm. birthing suites, I think you were saying, because of COVID and restrictions. and Exactly. So you weren't that familiar with the space. No, I'd never seen the birthing suites or anything. They were like, oh, you can do tours online. I'm like, who does that? How does that help? Oh, and there's the toilet and there's a bed and there's a window. Yeah. Okay, so she was there. So this is all playing out nicely. Yeah, so I arrived at the hospital. You have to go through the emergency entrance and sort of wait 
for your midwife to come down and get you. I think I had maybe two or three contractions while I was waiting for the midwife to come down. She came down, took me up to the birthing suite and she had it set up so nicely. She had a beautiful warm bath run. She had all the little dim lamps on and she just kept reminding me of the same things like stay in your zone, like do, you know, do do whatever you need to do, get yourself comfortable. By this stage it was about 9am. Had you planned on having a water bath? I wouldn't say that I had like my heart set on it. It wasn't a big part of my plan, but it was something that my midwife had suggested to me a few months earlier at one of my appointments that that was an option. Mm. It was something that I always wanted to give a go if it was an option. The contractions were so intense at this stage. The thought of like stripping my clothes off and getting in water was almost a bit too much. Yeah, I was like, I just don't think I want to. And both my midwife and Aiden both just sort of like gently encouraged me, like, you know, I think you should give it a go. It might be good. And so I did. And then once I got into the water, I just was like, oh, this feels so good. Like it was warm. It was all dim and calm in there. It took so much pressure off. Suddenly I felt weightless, which anyone who's been pregnant before will know how relieving that feeling is. So, yeah, then once I got into the bath, I just didn't get out, couldn't get out. Every time I actually lifted my body out of the water, I felt like my body was concrete. You know what I mean? Like it felt so good to be supported by the water. You feel weightless. So you were in the how long were you in the bath for then in total, like a couple of hours or...? Yeah, um, I think I probably got in about 9.30 and he was born at 12, so a couple hours. when Ren was born, what position were you in in the bath? How did he come flying out? I should say um, flying out. How did you push him out? <laughs> he actually kind of did, like not come flying out, but he came out in one very big, strong contraction, which I didn't think he was coming yet, so he kind of did come flying out. I think I was on all fours. Yeah. Like I was on my knees, hands and knees in the position that I actually gave birth to him. But again, the midwife was really encouraging of trying different positions. At one stage, she had suggested to sort of squat down like on my feet, holding up onto some bars above the bath. And that just really helped to change the position of my pelvis. And that helped immensely because... The contractions were just sort of going on and on. And once I got to that bearing down stage, man, that feeling is so relieving to me. I like that feeling compared to the contractions. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it just feels productive. Whereas the contractions that just go on and on and on and by that stage when they're so painful, it's just like I just can't do this anymore. So then Ren comes slipping out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think I was in that bearing down pushing stage maybe for like half an hour, but I would get to the pushing bearing down stage and I'd feel him coming out and then as the contraction would stop, he – can you hear him doing those little farts? Yes, I can. <laughs> I would go through one contraction where like I would push him and then the next one he would like suck back up again and I was like, no, oh, my God, No. So that's why I say I was, it was a little bit unexpected when he finally did come out in one of the contractions because by this stage I just thought it was never going to happen. I couldn't get him out. I was just beside myself. Like definitely got to that point where I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do this. And then sure enough, in one Faust push, yeah. You did it. Oh, but far out. Oh, my God. I know. It's, 
it's an overwhelming thought even to think back to, right? Yeah, very. I can't believe I did that. Um, One thing you mentioned to me, which you haven't mentioned yet, was when he came out, it was almost like he was still in his sack a little bit. Oh, yeah, he was. Yeah. It only just broke as his head came out. The midwife was saying that she saw his head coming out still in the sack, which it does happen. Like some babies are born fully still in their sack, but his broke just as he broke through. Yeah, so my waters never broke. I feel like if they had broken a little bit earlier in the bath, I wouldn't have really known anyway. Yeah, you probably didn't know if they had a – you probably weren't, to be honest, you probably weren't even thinking about it. Yeah, no, by this stage definitely not. But, yeah, throughout the whole labour period, my waters never broke and he, yeah, was kind of almost, yeah, still born in the sack, which was cool. Rare, but it does happen. And then, yeah, that feeling of when he was born – in the water was so amazing. Like I've said to a few people, like I sort of remember it like he was a little bit of a tadpole that I caught in a pond because <laughs> I sort of looked down and I was like, where is he? Where is he? And then, you know, I was kind of like, there he is. And I just like caught him and sort of almost like fished him and pulled him up and, oh, that feeling of when they finally come out. Oh, it's just the most incredible, relieving, euphoric feeling. Yeah. Oh, it's the best. How was your recovery post-birth? Oh, that was a bit – we had a bit of a rough start. I mean, as you know, I had a bit of a tear, second-degree tear, I think they say. So I had to get a few stitches, which, you know, that whole process is – it's all quite full-on, like directly after the birth. I lost quite a bit of blood. So I was feeling quite weak straight after. Actually, straight after he was born, I stood up in the bath and felt like my legs were stuck. The midwife and Aiden had to basically lift me out of the bath. How long I was after like, he I was can't. born did you try and get up? Like five minutes yeah. or ten minutes or something. And, yeah, I just could not get it. And also because you've got to get the placenta and stuff out. Yeah. So I think once you give birth in water, you sort of need to get out and get the placenta out and check the baby and all of that sort of thing. But, yeah, lost a bit of blood. The placenta came out easily. That part of it was all good had some stitches, was quite funny. Aiden went out to move the car at some point and get some food. Actually, it was a couple of hours after and get us some food. I was like, get everything. <laughs> get, <laughs> get me everything. Get croissants, get cakes, of course get you, coffees. I mean, you sent me a picture of the croissant and little baby, <laughs> and little baby ran and I'm like, of course that would be your post-birth choice. Treat, choice. <laughs> yeah, you love a croissant, love a pastry. Love it. Love it. <sighs> Yeah, it was quite funny. I sent that photo around to a few people and they thought that the croissant was the placenta. <laughs> <laughs> the placenta. My auntie sent the photo on to her family and she wrote in it like just a side warning, I think the placenta's in the photo. Oh, my and God. Her, and her kids wrote back to her like, Mum, that's a croissant. <laughs> that's so good. Okay, so. How funny is that? Okay, so. Then you were home pretty quickly. Like you were home that night, right? Yeah, this is part of the um, rules of the public system that if everything goes well, you go home after six hours. I must say, like it was nice to be at home in our own bed, especially since the house was so clean and the sheets were sheets were fresh. Yes, you didn't do all that work the night before for nothing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Okay, and so now you're about six weeks in. How have you found the last six weeks or five weeks? So, as I was saying earlier, Honey had gastro the day that I went into labour. So, sure enough, day two of being home, I had gastro. So, anyone that's given birth will know there's a lot of post-birth bleeding, 
tenderness, oh soreness, stitches. It's a lot. <laughs> You're fragile and sore and tender the way it is. I'm just going to say three things, three things that everyone needs to know about post-birth recovery. One, you bleed for weeks. Yeah. Everyone's different. I'm still bleeding mildly now and it's I'm almost six weeks. Yeah. That goes on and on and on. I remember the first time I was like, what is going on here? Secondly, the post-birth contractions of your uterus are so painful and intense. They were so much more intense this time around than they were with honey. And third of all, the feeding is relentless. <laughs> you forgot one other thing too, the night sweats. Oh, yes. Oh, my God, yes. Thank you for reminding me. I sweat to the point where I am wet through my pyjamas, through the sheets every single night. It's the worst. It's so awful to wake up. And that's still happening up. six weeks in. It's still yeah. happening. I put a towel down on the bed every night before I go to bed. Like it's full on. Yeah. You should just sleep in your bathers. I need to wear the clothes though so I can take it off because otherwise it just all goes through the sheets. Like I need, <laughs> I need something to sweat onto so it's not just all in the sheets. But, I mean, don't get me wrong, like these are all part of the process yeah. and you'd absolutely take it in your stride and if you have the right education and support, it's all just part of it and it's an incredible experience and even those things that are surprising, painful, you know, whatever they are, it's still part of the incredible experience. So, yeah, we just had a bit of a rough start with the gastro and then, of course, with how many bugs are going around at the moment. We ended up on day seven with a nasty cold virus, which Ren ended up with as well. And that made the feeding quite difficult to get in the rhythm together because he had a blocked nose and was struggling to breastfeed. And then it sort of affected my milk production because he wasn't drinking enough. Then I ended up with mastitis the following week. Oh. And never had that the first time around, so I didn't know the signs, ended up on antibiotics. Oh, it's so horrendous. It's awful. Mastitis. Yeah. I had it both with both my girls. Yeah. It's now that I have experienced it, I feel for anyone that's had it, it's it's pretty rough and very painful. And it can keep coming back, which is shit. So we had a yeah, we had a bit of a rough start, but we're getting there and everything's settled in a bit more nicely now. I just was really worried for a couple of weeks there about my milk production, about the breastfeeding. It's like so important for me to breastfeed. It's just something that I really want to do. I had a great breastfeeding experience with honey and it's been so much harder and more difficult this time. So that was a bit of a surprise. But we're getting there. And I tell you what, every minute and every part of it is all worth it. Totally. Couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. And you're doing an amazing job. Look at you right now. You've got <laughs> got Ren right there. You're feeding him. Mm, you just thanks, shared babe. your, you know, intimate birth story with us. So thank you so much for doing that. Thanks, and darling. Thanks for your support. You're like not even six weeks in. So Yeah. Yeah, we've all got to be like be gentle on yourself. Go, you know, be and gentle. Respect the process. Absolutely. As yeah. you kind of you know, you use this word quite a bit, you know, just got to surrender, mm. got to surrender to the process. You do, especially in this early postpartum period because honestly, like, you know, the cyclical rhythm every day of, you know, it's just feeding, nappies, sleep, feeding, nappies, sleep. It's like truthfully, it's pretty monotonous. Mm. It's beautiful at the same time. It's incredibly beautiful mess. Yeah, big, beautiful, chaotic mess. 
it is so precious and fleeting and beautiful, but like truthfully, it can be really monotonous. Mm. And I'm sure a lot of people can, can agree and relate to that. And we do talk about it as being beautiful a lot, but not the truth. So, yeah. you know, I'm very happy to talk about what my truth is and what my choices are and not everyone will agree or be on the same page of how I've chosen or what I've done or or how I've navigated it. But I think it's just really important for people to recognise, acknowledge and respect how powerful childbirth is and, you know, that we all do have the opportunity to educate and empower ourselves to have the type of birth that we want. There's way too much birth trauma in the world and I think that's just from a lack of education and empowerment and if it's important to you to have a good, safe birth in the way that you want to, go and educate yourself because everybody absolutely has the chance to, I believe. You know, things things go wrong and things happen and that's why it's amazing that we have the access to amazing healthcare and hospitals and doctors that we have to fix any issues and save lives. But it's also up to the individual. It's up to you. We are going to talk more Who about is. the first few weeks at a later episode and we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, mental health during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. postnatally all all of that but right now I think it's a good time to mention that we are getting back into sharing is caring today yes it's been a hot minute um but we are pretty pumped as we're going to be doing a sharing is caring today and we'll be chatting to Rebecca Edwards Rebecca is a speaker she's a writer educator and a qualified naturopath we really wanted to chat to her because how we've been talking about how everybody's been sick, how our kids are so sick in childcare, in schools. It's like a merry-go-round that we all can't get off of. sickness with young kids. And Rebecca has more than 18 years of experience educating on all aspects of integrative health. So the perfect person that we can speak to about this sort of thing. We all want some tips and support in how to get through this winter of, you know, nasty colds and bugs. We want to chat to Rebecca all about immune health, gut health, and how we can support ourselves and our kids through these colder winter months, full of all these horrific, nasty bugs that we all keep getting. So let's hear from her. Here she is. Rebecca, thank God you are here with us today. If anyone can educate us on supporting our immune and gut health, it's you. As the Director of Education at Activated Nutrients, we're just so thankful that they put us in touch with you and organise this chat so we can all learn a few things to better support ourselves and our kids and just get through this nasty, endless winter of all the bugs that are going around. Has everyone just been asking you for help and support with illnesses lately? Absolutely. My phone is completely blowing up yeah. with messages from my book club friends and my school mum friends and my childhood friends and my university friends. Everybody wants to know why is my kid so sick this winter and mm. why is everybody I know unwell and what can I do about it? We're definitely in the same boat, aren't we, Soph? Having mm. young kids, they're just mm. constantly, constantly sick. Yeah, it's rough. So, Rebecca, what are some of the basics that we all need to know about our immune systems? Obviously, they're very complex, but give us an overview about how they work. 
Well, that's a big question. It's really interesting whenever we talk about the immune system because the immune system is such an enigma. You know, if you ask to point to your circulatory system, you can understand that that's the heart and the blood vessels and what's your respiratory system, that's your lungs. But if you ask someone, where's your immune system? What's the answer? It's almost a, a mythical beast, but it's not. You know, we're, we're learning more about the immune system all the time. And I guess the important place to start is that the immune system is not just one thing. I mean, if you want to boil it down, the immune system is a complex messaging system where different chemicals called cytokines are released by the membranes of your white blood cells. And they're released in response to other messages floating around your body, essentially. So your immune system is basically a reaction to uh, what's coming into your body from the external environment. I guess that's kind of a, a little way of distilling down what the immune system is. It is hard to understand because we yeah. do talk about it like it's this simple sort of thing or everyone says like, you know, I need to strengthen my immune system or but no one really knows what it is. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's interesting because something that I hear a lot is people saying, oh, what can I do to exactly what, what you just said, Sophie, strengthen my immune system or boost my immune system? And I think it's really important that we acknowledge that actually you don't want to strengthen your immune system. When mm -hmm. your immune system is too strong, then that's when people can develop autoimmune diseases, which okay. is when you've got immune overreactivity, when your immune system actually starts to attack part of your own body tissue. Right you know, like in psoriasis or type 1 diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis or Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Mm -hmm. So we don't want a strong immune system. We don't want a weak immune system. Mm. We want an optimally functioning, balanced immune system, and that's what we're all aiming for. So a healthy diet's obviously important. We all know that for our health. But when it does come to our own immune system balance, what does a healthy diet look like? Essentially, it looks like diversity and it looks largely plant-based. I mean, you can find people to argue with you till the cows come home about, you know, raw food vegan is the only way. No, carnivore diet is the only way. No, it's paleo. No, it's low carb. And, you know, the truth is that there is no one optimal pure diet for every single human on the planet, but mm. also dietary extremes have never been proven to correlate with long-term health benefits. Mm. If we go back to what's an optimal diet for immune modulation or, or healthy immune balance, then what the longitudinal observational research studies show us around the world is that a diet that is largely composed of plant material, especially fresh plant matter, yeah. does correlate most significantly with you know longer-term health benefits. But if we look at why that is, a big part of that comes back to another topic that we all want to talk about all the time that's on the tip of everyone's tongue at the moment, which is the microbiome. Yeah. Because your immune system is intricately related to your microbiome. Your microbiome is the, the complex collection of microbes which reside not just in the lining of your intestinal tract, but actually the lining of every body surface, of every organ, of every cavity. Essentially, humans are just walking crowds of bacteria. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it can get a little bit creepy when you think about <laughs> it like that. But we wouldn't exist if we weren't convenient microbial hosts. Yeah. And it's a, it's, <laughs> microbial you know, it's, hosts. Absolutely. And it's a two-way relationship because we exist so that microbes can live on us and in us. But in return, microbes 
you know, play out several really important roles in our immune health. Once again, if we look at what the relationship is between the microbiome and immune outcomes and health outcomes, Mm. we see overwhelmingly that people with the most diverse gut microbiomes are those who are most likely to have the greatest health outcomes. So that means people who have lots and lots of different types of microbial life living inside them. It gets all science fiction-y at this point. Mm. But where this kind of intersects with the diet is that I just love thinking about this. All plant foods contain lots and lots of different kinds of fibers. Some of them we can see, like, you know, when you eat a banana and you can see the strings in the banana, but most fibers that are in plant foods are too small for us to see as humans, but they are definitely big enough for the bacteria in our gut to find and then to use as their fuel sources. You know, the, the definition of fiber is a substance that we don't have the digestive capacity to break down. But the microbes that live inside us do, and they use those fibers to fuel their own metabolic processes. So the more different types of plant materials, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, you know, anything that comes from a plant, the more different types you eat, the Mm. more different types of fiber you're consuming, the more different types of microbe you are supporting. And what Mm. that all adds up to is a more diverse microbiome, which we know relates to a more balanced and optimally functioning immune system. So Mm. that's the most long-winded way to answer your question. What is a healthy diet? Ultimately, it's a diet that supports your microbiome. Mm. I think at the end of the day, it makes a lot of sense. There is so many diets out there that are very specific and obviously work for certain body types and certain immune systems and certain people. But the studies show that, you know, diversity, whole foods, a range of different nutrients and foods are what work best. Yeah, it's the only diet that's been proven in the long term. I mean, a lot of these kind of more faddish diets, I guess that's a, it's, it feels like a little bit of an unfair term to use, but more extreme yeah. diets mm. may you know work in inverted commas in the short term but have not been proven to do so in the long term. And the only one that has is the Mediterranean diet. Yeah. And if you look at the keystone kind of definitions of the Mediterranean diet, it's absolutely full of legumes and seasonal vegetables and nuts and Good seeds. Fact, and yeah. exactly, yeah, and largely plant-based. You know, the mm. traditional Mediterranean diets had animal protein only a couple of times a week. Mm. And a more relaxed lifestyle. Don't they all talk about how they, you know, get together? Yeah, nap in the afternoon, get together and have their afternoon catch up and and drink and eat together and all this sort of stuff that has to absolutely play a role in in their overall health. But I'm a real stickler in my household, Rebecca, to eat the skins of our kiwis and the strings on the bananas and all these things with all the extra fiber. And my partner laughs and he's like, you know, the skins don't taste good, like cut them off. And I'm like, (laughs) They're so healthy. There's no point in eating it they without are. it. Do you know, my daughter loves the skin of a mango and I'm like, go for it. Eat it. Oh, you can fantastic. have it. Amazing. Yes. She does. Yeah, so yeah. talking about kids, if they are fussy or picky eaters, which I know from mm. my own experience can be incredibly stressful and you worry a lot as a parent. Well, I do often, you know, and they're not getting enough of the right nutrients from their diet. What can we do? Are things like probiotics going to help them? Yeah, that's a huge question. Ultimately, what we want to do as parents is, and you know, this is, oh my goodness, opening the biggest can of worms, is take the emotional pressure off kids and diet. It's advice that I remember so clearly my mum giving me when my little boy was a toddler. 
And I remember I was at my mum's house and he'd, I mean, he, he, to be fair, he's actually always been a really good, in inverted commas, again, eater. Yeah. But um, I think he hadn't eaten all day and I was thinking, oh, my goodness, tonight's going to be terrible. And he then sat down and ate three boiled eggs for dinner. <laughs> and I remember saying to him, oh, well done, darling. Mummy's so pleased with you. And my mum just pulled me out of the room quick as a flash and she said, don't do that. Don't tie your emotions to what he's eating. That's, oh, that's dangerous. I can do that occasionally. So I'm glad you just mentioned that. It makes sense, doesn't it, though? Not yeah, to do it. It, it really does. And it, it was such a light, lightning bolt moment for me. It just made me think, wow, that is how you set up relationships between, you know, unhealthy relationships with mm. food and emotions. You know, it mm. starts right from that pleasing your mother by, you know, by eating widely. So I guess my first piece of advice to parents would be take your foot off the emotional button when it comes to food and you you know the parent's job is to give your child a range of again I don't really want to use the word healthy diverse meals yeah. foods to eat and it's your child's job to eat what they feel like eating and yeah. we don't you know we don't threaten we don't bribe we don't um, again feed any of our own emotions into that relationship so that's kind of point number one if we then go start looking at you know, what's going on with the actual nutritional input, then it comes back to what we were talking about a moment ago, diversity is key. And again, with fussy kids, often something that I find works really well is offering them a great big platter of all different things. Yeah. And again, taking the pressure off, putting it down near them while they're playing. Again, think about where did we get this construct that children have to sit at the table and eat all of their food in, you know, a 10 or 15 minute kind of sprint and then go back to playing and living their life. Mm. Toddlers' entire lives are journeys of discovery and, you know, experimentation. So pop down a plate of five or six or ten different cut-up fruit and vegetables next to them while they're playing. And those little, you know, those gorgeous chubby little hands will just reach mm. out and take little bits and they will be exploring their food as they're exploring, you know, with their playtime. So that's something that, that works with a lot of people I speak to is just taking the pressure off, providing yeah. lots of variety and letting them explore at their own pace. Yeah. When it comes to what we can do when we've got kids who really aren't um, taking in as much variety or even as much substance as we would want, then, you know, there's a couple of things you can look at doing really. You can, I'm never a fan of synthetic-based nutritional supplements, but you can look for a, you know, a whole food um, kind of blend of concentrated fruit and vegetable powders that you can mix into uh, plant milk or um, breast milk or whatever you're feeding your kids. So that can be useful there. And mm -hmm. to go back to your question, Kate, around probiotics. So that's a really big topic and something that we're hearing a lot about at the moment. How can probiotics help with the immune system? And again, that comes back to that relationship between the microbiome and immune regulation. With mm. probiotics, it's really important to look at the research behind the individual bacterial strains that you're okay. using. It's not the case that any probiotic will be beneficial for the immune system. Mm. You need to make sure that, as with pharmaceutical medicines, that there is good quality, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trials done on the specific strains mm. or the specific combination of probiotic that you're looking at giving. And yeah, there definitely are strains which have been shown in studies on real children to yes. reduce their risk of contracting respiratory infections over winter. Would you look at the um, specific strains for your child or is it more of like a generic thing that, you know, a certain strain is good for like the winter season 
to fight certain bugs or for a certain age of child or how do you yeah. understand, like, what is the right strain for your child? I suppose you would speak to a doctor, but... Yeah, or, you know, somebody who knows probiotics well. So, mm, it might be your like doctor, you. it might be your... Yeah, like, like us. Can we put you on speed dial? Can we have your number, Rebecca? Yeah. <laughs> you can, you absolutely can. And you can, you know, join the chorus of other worried parents who are w- yeah. wondering what they can do. You know, your pharmacist, your naturopath, your nutritionist, your GP, they all may be able to help you if they've, um, you know, if they have an interest in probiotics and may have done some reading. Mm. Um, but it, again, it, it kind of, you know, just reflects back on the idea of the importance of good quality research that you really want to look at strains which have been put through clinical trials in groups of children just like yours. So that may be children in, um, you know, the preschool age category. It may be older children. It may be children who are more prone to respiratory infections. It may be children on antibiotics. Uh, so understanding which populations the bacterial strains have been trialed in and the outcomes that have been found will help guide you towards, um, you know, the, the strains and therefore the products that are going to be best suited for your needs. That's so great to know because I feel like a lot of people would just go and buy a probiotic that's age appropriate for their child yeah, and see it and go, you know, I take probiotics, they're good for me, I'll buy this for my child and get them to have it. But obviously a lot more yeah it's always it's always you know important to I think to understand what what are the particular bacterial you know little friends that I'm inviting into my body in this probiotic supplement and what do we know about those exact little bacteria what have they mm. been found to do so yeah my advice would be to speak to someone who has done extra training in probiotics and knows what they're talking about Rebecca let's leave our audience with a few more of your amazing tips to support our health, but particularly as well, if you've got any more to support our kids' health? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this time of year, a lot of my friends have started asking about sun exposure as well and vitamin D. Vitamin D is a really interesting one because if vitamin D was kind of discovered now, we wouldn't actually call it a vitamin. We would call it a pro-hormone. And that's because we actually produce our own vitamin D. We produce vitamin D from cholesterol in our bloodstream. I've got a one-month-old baby who I'm breastfeeding at the moment and I've been recommended to give them vitamin D drops because from what I understand, it was one thing that they can't absorb from my breast milk. Is that right? Not exactly. So vitamin D is a fat-soluble nutrient. It needs to be absorbed in the digestive tract with globules of fat. Breast milk is a largely fatty substance. So technically breast milk should be a good source of vitamin D. The issue with, with any kind of public health directive like you know all breastfed babies should be given vitamin D drops, that comes from really looking at a population level rather than an individual level right. where we can't be sure that every breastfeeding mother has adequate levels of vitamin D for there to be optimal levels in the breast milk it's easier and safer to give an overriding directive if you like to all breastfeeding mums that breastfed babies should receive extra vitamin d and it's kind of a a safety net in case the breastfeeding mums levels are not optimal very good thanks for the amazing advice Rebecca. Thank you so much, Rebecca. It's been such oh, a joy. Oh, thank you so much on. for having me come in to chat with you two. It's, I've, I've been a listener for a long time and it's lovely to be part of the process now. Oh, thank you so much. We could chat forever. Chat All forever day. and we're going to put you uh, put your number in our phones. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rebecca. Thank you so much. 
that's it for today. Make sure you head to incommonprojects.com.au for the show notes, hit subscribe on your podcast app and follow us on Instagram at Talking In Common or you can check out our Facebook page which is also Talking In Common. Have a lovely day and as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.